Greetings. Welcome to Lesson 3 of the Life of Christ, based on the uh, Living Logos, Life of Christ, number one. And uh, we are continuing our study and and, uh, digging into the life of Jesus. And we've talked so far a good bit about the Godhead and understanding that based on the influences we have in our world today, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. And so in this session, we're going to focus on the man, Christ Jesus. And it's it's important for us to understand that Jesus Christ was God manifested in the flesh, but he was fully man. His humanity was no different than our humanity Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3 and verse number 16, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And remind you from the first session, that word mystery is not something that's that's uh, mystical, that cannot be understood, but more so it is, a, it is a secret that is to be revealed, and we can understand it. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And then also Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, That is the devil. And so we know, we talked about this a good bit in the last session, we know that the birth of Jesus or the conception of Jesus was miraculous. According to the scripture, Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Ghost. And so his conception was miraculous, but in in, in the rest of the regards of his humanity, uh, he he was no different than we are. His flesh was was flesh like our flesh. He he had the same physical needs that we have. He had the need for for food. He had the need for water. He had the need for for rest. All of those things were 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 the same as us. And as we will discuss here in this session, that was that was of necessity, so that what he had come to do would uh, would in essence be valid. Um, bottom line is if he had any uh, unfair advantages in his humanity, uh, then the life that he lived, um, the life of obedience and submission and surrender to the will of God would not have uh, would not have been valid. And so it's important for us to understand that he, again, was just as much human as we are. Uh, we we only know a little bit about him from his birth until the time at which John basically announces him publicly and states that it's the Lamb of God. And the one thing uh, we, we do know about him was the trip to the temple with his family at the age of 12. And, and it's in this scene that we get a little bit of a glimpse that, uh, again, he was fully human, but at the same time, uh, it was it was 
recognizable that there was something a little bit different about him because at 12 years old, uh, he's sitting there having conversations with doctors and educated people and carrying on a conversation with them that they are, uh, in essence, kind of wowed um, by his his knowledge and his understanding. But outside of that, there there are no uh, there's no supernatural powers, if you will, that have been manifested in his life. And really, from the time of his birth until the time he comes on the scene. Uh, again, when John the Baptist proclaims that he's the Lamb of God, there, there's really little proof that is known or seen of who he is. Um, there's not really anything that shows that he is, in fact, God manifested in the flesh. And part of the reason for that was because the timing of that to be revealed had not come yet. And and that's a side note that's a very important point for us in our lives. God has a specific timing in our lives for the things that he wants to reveal in and through us. And I think sometimes if we're not careful, uh, we're, we're sort of in that hidden stage that Jesus was in. And, if, and, and, and we may not see, we may not easily recognize that God is at work in our lives, that God is developing us and maturing us, and at the right time, that uh, at, at God's time, then then the full revelation is going to come. And and so uh, the the word I think that best describes what we must be is the word patience. And and according to Scripture, that word patience is not just simply. Uh, like you're sitting around waiting for something and, and you're waiting with a good attitude. You're waiting with a smile on your face. That word patience means endurance. So it means that you are staying in the process. You are enduring the process because if you will have patience or endurance, there's coming a time at which the, the, who you are, who God has made you to be will be revealed in, in the, the certain situations and circumstances that God has created you for and the purpose that God has for your life. So we, we, we need to understand that Jesus Christ, again, was fully human. His, his flesh was not special flesh. He, he had no advantages over us. Uh, he, he, was, he was just as much flesh as we were. And so when, when we ultimately step back and look at his life and everything he did and everything he went through, we, we need to understand that because if we feel like he had some kind of special advantage, then, then we would use that for an excuse for uh, our lack of submission or our disobedience to the will of the Father in our lives. And so Jesus willingly decided to submit to the, to the reason for which he was created, and we must do the same. And so as a part of that being made human, hum, uh, becoming a human, God robing himself in flesh, there, there's obviously several reasons for that. And one of the reasons is it was, it was God identifying himself with us. Um, God existed only as the eternal spirit before the birth of Jesus Christ, in Bethlehem, with no body like ours that was subjected to temptations and sufferings, it would be hard for some of us to believe that he really could understand us. So 
if we're going to trust in this God who says he loves us and cares about us, but he's never experienced anything that we've gone through, we, we could potentially doubt that he really does understand. And so he became a man. Philippians 2 and 7 says, but he made himself of no reputation and he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And I think that that second verse there really kind of emphasizes the idea that, that it was a process for him as well to become obedient or to be obedient, uh, especially as, as the purpose of his life unfolded as he came near to the culmination of why he was here. And that was his death for, for most of us. We are waiting for sort of the culmination of, of great victories and great accomplishment in ministry, but the ultimate accomplished for accomplishment for Jesus was was a part of that was was the need to die and so he humbled himself and became obedient unto that and then also first Peter 2 and 21 says for even here unto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his footsteps So he left us an example that we should follow, and by his spirit we can follow. But we, as as well as what Jesus had to do, we must submit. So let me go back to this point of of him being able to understand and identify with us. So he, he became a man, and so he experienced what we experienced he, he went through, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in depth in a few minutes. He went through things that uh, we would go through and so that so that he could relate to us. It, it, it is, I have tried to make it a practice in, in my ministry that when I am talking to someone that's sharing with me some difficulties or challenges they have gone through or that they are currently going through, that that if I have not been through that, that I don't tell them, well, I understand what you're going through. I, uh, at this point in time, I, my, both of my parents are still living. My wife, her mother passed away when she was very young. And so I, I really can't tell my wife, well, I understand. I try to relate. I try to imagine. But I can't say that I truly understand what she's going through. And, and so Jesus took on the form of a man and and went through things that we go through so that we could understand that he truly understands. I I think the bottom line is we could say he really already understood because because of who he is and because of his nature. But but I believe this idea of him becoming a man and and walking among humanity, living as a human really provides us with another level of, of faith and confidence that he really does understand what we are going through. And we're going to read this verse in a few minutes, but he is he is touched by the feelings of our infirmity. He, he feels what we feel. He experiences what we go through. And, and so one of the reasons uh, that, that God became a man was, was to to identify with us. And then uh, another very important part of that is the fact that that was necessary 
to fulfill all righteousness. So throughout the Old Testament, we have the sacrifices of animals for, for the atonement of our sins. and But the ultimate sacrifice had to take place by Jesus Christ. And for him to do that, again, he couldn't have any special advantages. He, he couldn't have any superpowers in his in his flesh. He had to be like us. He had to have the same weaknesses that, that we may have. And yet, as we know, he overcame those weaknesses and, and submitted himself fully to the will of the Father. When he was baptized, uh, and, 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 and John baptized him, and we have read about, we've read these verses already in this, in this series on the life of Christ, and the Spirit, uh, descended like a dove and the voice from heaven acknowledging this is my beloved son all of that was a part of the fulfillment of of righteousness the things that are required or expected of us jesus had to to follow the same path if you will that we must follow and and sort of a side note i think there's some principles that we also can see uh, as a part of Jesus' baptism, that are that are some of the uh, patterns, if you will, for us in regards to the plan of salvation. To be saved, we must follow Jesus. We must follow the example, and the example that he set is that he was baptized by John. He was baptized by full immersion by John, and then the next thing was we we must open our hearts to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. When we do, there will be a definite witness of the Spirit that we have become the sons and daughters of the Almighty God. And so, uh, again, in John chapter 1, John says that the Spirit bore witness with him that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. And so the pattern should hold for us that when the Spirit of God comes into our lives, there should be a a uh, visible, if you will, witness to the Spirit of God resting upon us, coming to dwell within us, not simply because we have made a profession of our faith, but there should be evidence. Romans says this, verse chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So Paul's saying that, that the Spirit of God provides a confirmation that we are the children of God. There is evidence to be seen. And so throughout Scripture, particularly in the book of Acts, we, we find what the common evidence of, of that is. What is the common thing that demonstrates that there is a witness that the Spirit of God has come into our lives? In every instance in the Bible where people were filled with the Holy Ghost, there was a definite witness that they receive the Spirit of God. And that witness that we find is people speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. And a few examples, if you'd like to look into this a little bit more later, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Acts chapter 8, verses 17 through 19, Acts 10, 44 through 48, also Acts 19, 1 through 6. And so these are... These are examples, these are New Testament examples of what happened when people received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and there was evidence, visible evidence, and 
in this context, that visible evidence was was in essence an audible evidence as people began to speak in other tongues. And and also, and I'm not going to get caught up in it right now, but not only do we have the examples uh, that I've just given you in the book of Acts, but we've, we've got some principles that we find throughout the Gospels as well as throughout the Old Testament that basically indicate to us that there will be uh, sign, there will be an evidence. And, and again, as is demonstrated throughout the book of Acts, the common evidence that we see is people speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. And so Jesus had confirmation. John saw the Spirit descending, and that was confirmation to John that the Spirit was resting upon Jesus, that he was, in fact, the Son of God. And so when we become sons or daughters of God, we should be able to expect uh, we, we should expect that there is evidence. I, I think we have a, we should have a right and we do have a right to expect that it's more than just simply a, a confession. Uh, I make a confession of faith and then I'm sort of left wondering, has this really happened? But according to scripture, we see that there is evidence to be had for ourselves as well as for others that we have in fact Receive the Spirit of God into our own lives, and so an, another uh, another important point, and 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 especially in the demonstration of the humanity of Jesus Christ, is when we see several times throughout Scripture that He specifically prayed. Now, uh, some some think that this again is is sort of a proof. Uh, of of the doctrine of the Trinity that the Father, Son, and the and the Holy Spirit are three separate co-equal persons, but uh, in fact, it's it's simply a demonstration that Jesus Christ was was fully God, but he was fully man. And so, when we see him praying, it is not one person of the Trinity talking to another person of the Trinity. It is the humanity of Jesus Christ praying. And, and I don't want to take too much time on this point because we've already spent a lot of time on it in the first two lessons. But if, if they are, if the Godhead is, is three separate co-equal persons, then does not the fact of one person praying to another person demonstrate that they are not co-equal? I, I would not appeal to someone that is, uh, a, 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 uh, subordinate to me or even an equal to me. If I share equal power and authority with someone, I, I don't need their approval. I don't need their support. I, I can make my own decisions. I can I can give instructions or directions without them. And so a an appeal to someone else for for their help, for their support, in essence is a is a demonstration that that we are not equals. And so if Jesus was in fact the the second person of the Trinity praying to the first person then then how can you say that they were they were co-equal but if you believe that the Father Son and the Holy Ghost are three separate manifestations of the same God then it's really not that complicated again it is just simply the evidence that Jesus Christ was was just as much human as we are and so in addition to that, I, I think not only is it a proof of, of the humanity of Jesus Christ, 
And, and Paul says that in him, in Jesus, was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So in that in that human body was the fullness of the Godhead. But again, that human body was was just as much humanity as you and I are. And and so in addition to that, I think there's another important point of this this idea of Jesus praying, and that is because he was a human, we as humans not only need to pray, we, we really should want to pray, we should have a desire. But as a part of his life, he he set an example to us of prayer. And I will just refer to a couple of these, and, and you can Take the time, if you'd like, to kind of read them and and, uh, look into them in a little more depth later. But we find one of those in Luke chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, uh, where the Scripture tells us that he continued all night in prayer before choosing the apostles. Uh, We find in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, that he rose a great while before day and prayed and then we also find in Luke 22, verses 39 to 43, as well as Hebrews 5 and 7, that he, he had earnest prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, asking for the Father to give him strength to yield to what he was about to have to go through. Um, and in his humanity, he says, if it's possible, then, then let me not have to go through this. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so there was that submission and surrender. And I want to just go back to that first example of prayer. I think one of the things that we can glean from that is while we should have regular, consistent prayer in our lives, uh, devotional time of prayer, and then also Paul says we're to pray without ceasing. Uh, it's It's impossible basically for any of us just to uh, stay in one specific location and pray all the time. So I think Paul was was uh, encouraging us and letting us know that there is a a connection and a a fellowship that we can have uh, with the Lord all the time. And so we need those set times of, of focus, and we also can have continual communication. I think that that kind of reminds me of the relationship with my wife. There are some times in which we need to sit down, no distractions, no interruptions, and we need to have communication. But then also throughout the course of the day, whether that's when we are in the same location um, or nowadays by the benefit of technology, uh, we, we can we can communicate, we can touch base with each other throughout the day, and so we can we can in essence be in continual communication. Uh, the the beauty of of that when it comes to the Lord is we aren't just texting Him, we aren't just calling Him, but we are in the same place, and so He is always with us. Um, but again, I I want to point out in that first example that I do think there's also some times in our lives where where there are some very significant things that are taking place. Maybe in the case of Jesus, it was. It was the significance that he was about to select his followers. And, and so he spent a significant season of prayer in prayer before that. And, and I think, uh, that also takes place in our lives when we are facing some major, uh, decisions, whether that's, uh, uh, ministry decisions or if you're single and you're going to get married, decisions about who you're marrying or, career decisions that that uh, we we should give those things a little more focus and time 
than just sort of our, our routine, normal prayer. So again, not only was Jesus praying a demonstration of his humanity, but I also believe he was setting an example to us of the need for prayer, but also the privilege of prayer. Uh, I think one of the greatest privileges in our lives is the privilege to pray. It is the privilege to have personal, intimate communication with the Lord uh, and have our own relationship with him that is not dependent upon others. And so those are a couple of, again, significant things as to the reason why Jesus prayed. So let's kind of go back to this idea of of his humanity and that part of him becoming a human was that we could trust that he really does understand us and that he can identify with us. I referred to this verse a few minutes ago, but it's found in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 15. And the scripture says that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, high priest, hang on a few minutes. We're actually going to come back to that in a little bit and, and talk about that in a little more in depth. But but it says that we have a high priest. And, and let's kind of say this. There's a bunch of double negatives in there. and So let's kind of rephrase it. Uh, in the positive way, and, and, and what the scripture is saying, we have a high priest who identifies, he relates, he understands what we go through because he was in all points tempted like as we are. And so I, I realize maybe you could say in a few areas that, that, you know, the exact circumstances that you're dealing with, Jesus didn't deal with, but in principle, I think you can find uh, whatever you're going through, I, I believe in principle you can find something that the man Christ Jesus dealt with uh, that is that is similar in principle to what you're going through, and therefore we have the confirmation that that he is touched by our infirmities, that he understands what we go through. It says again, it says that he was tempted in all points, and so. Let's let's look at that a little bit because this is also a very significant part that Jesus was tempted and yet he did not give in to that temptation. So as we as we're talking about the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, he had to be the perfect spotless lamb, and so he, he it was necessary that he did not give in. But again, it would not be fair. If he did not have to face temptation, if, if, if he had some kind of special human powers or if he did not have to face humanity, then it would sort of be, uh, you know, unreasonable that, okay, yes, he was perfect, but he didn't have to deal with what we have to deal with. And yet he had to deal with it. And, and so while there were many temptations, no doubt that Jesus had to deal with Matthew, uh, tells us about a, a period of, of time where Jesus experienced uh, sort of three very significant temptations. And uh, so let, let's take a look at these because if we go back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, uh, we, we can see we can see some some similarities or we can draw some correlations between what Jesus faces here in this temptation and what Eve and Adam faced in the garden. First John 2.16 tells us, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, 
but of the world. So there's three things we see there, and and we can relate each of these three things to what Jesus deals with here in the wilderness, but also with what Adam and Eve faced in the garden. So the first temptation deals with the lust of the flesh. Jesus had just completed a 40-day fast, and he was hungry and needed something to eat, and so the the, the Satan shows up, uh, and, and let me just pause for a moment. We, we talk about uh, dealing with Satan in our lives. I really don't think most of us deal with Satan. We deal with demons. There is one Satan, and he is not omnipresent like God is. He is not everywhere at once. Uh, and But there are many demons that are under his direction and guidance. But in this context, Jesus was dealing not simply with a demon, but he was dealing with Satan. And so he comes to tempt him, and he says this, If you be the Son of God, command that these stones be made into bread. So you're hungry, you've got the power to make these stones into bread to fulfill your own needs. So he was tempting Jesus to use his power for his own personal benefit. And yet Jesus responds and says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So the the lust of the flesh here is there was something that Jesus needed and in fact wanted, and, and he could have used his own power and ability to get what he wanted, and yet he overcame that temptation. The next one is the pride of life. The devil took Jesus and set him up upon the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and said unto him, If you be the Son of God, cast yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. So here Jesus, or Satan is actually using scripture to try to trick Jesus into doing something. This temptation was to, was to tempt him to use the spiritual for the spectacular, put on kind of a show, if you will. The Jews loved signs, and perhaps Jesus could convince the multitudes that he was the Messiah with such a tremendous display of power. But part of the problem was that was not the way in which Jesus was supposed to demonstrate who he was. And so this second time, he now responds and says, It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then the third one has to do with the lust of the eye. This is the final temptation that took place here in the in the wilderness. And the devil takes him to an exceedingly high mountain and, and in some manner, perhaps in a vision, allowed him to see all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan tells him, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give all of this to you. And so he was tempting Jesus to gain what ultimately belonged to him, but through the wrong means, a, a shortcut, if you will. And if we're not careful, the lust of our eyes can cause us to try to get things out of God's will or, or outside of God's way for us to get him, to get those things. And so once again, Jesus responds that it is written and he says, get thee hence, Satan, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And, and so Jesus is faced with these three temptations, very similar to what Eve faced in the garden. And yet the difference is that Jesus overcame these temptations. Eve and ultimately Adam gave in to these things in the garden. 
but Jesus overcame them. I want you to also notice a very important point here is how that Jesus responded to Satan. He, he did not just use his own human reasoning or arguments, but each time he says it is written. He references what the word of God says. Psalm 119 and 11, I think, applies to this. The psalmist says, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So it is the word of God that that we use to help us to avoid or overcome, uh, not avoid, but to overcome the temptation because we allow the spirit of God to lead us and guide us. And then we now have the benefit of the Spirit of God, the grace of God to empower us and equip us so that we can, in fact, overcome the temptation that we fail, we, we, we face. And so Adam and Eve faced the temptation and fell. Jesus Christ faced not only these temptations, but many others, and he overcame And because of that, you and I have a hope. We find that hope in John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3. And John says, Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So if the Spirit of God is in me and I have this hope, I can trust that God is going to equip me to empower me to overcome the temptation as well. So let's look now uh, at kind of the remainder of this session. And we just read a few moments ago in Hebrews where it talks about our high priest. So let's let's look at Jesus Christ and, and, and the fact that he manifested himself in the flesh and he became our high priest and ultimately he became our sacrifice. Let me read a couple of different scriptures to you here. First in Hebrews 2. Verse number 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for, for the sins of the people. For in him, for, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor that, to succor them that are tempted. Next is Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then, we've already uh, referenced this, but seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we have a high priest and we have a high priest who is not disconnected from us. And then Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, I realize that uh, we don't see the word high priest or the words high priest there, but if you would understand that the high priest in the Old Testament, his, his basic duty 
was to be the mediator between God and the people. And so while the word high priest is not in these two verses, we do see the word mediator. And the word mediator basically means a go-between. It is the one whose responsibility is to, to reconcile two persons or two parties who are at enmity or who are at odds. The pers- this person can also be called a peacemaker or reconciler. So in essence, what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy is that he was the high priest, that God became uh, a man, and that man, Christ Jesus, was the go-between, the mediator. Again, he was not now this or not the second person of the Trinity. He became a man. He took the place of those that had been a high priest to be the, the one to reconcile us to God. First, second Corinthians five and verse 18 says this, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So now the man Christ Jesus is no longer on this earth, but the ministry of reconciliation is still taking place. God reconciling man to himself. But now you and I have been given that ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the, the word of reconciliation. So in essence, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, giving them their punishment. He was actually providing a way for mercy and grace. And so Jesus Christ became our high priest. The, the high priests were responsible for conducting the sacrifices for for the atonement of sins in the Old Testament. they Again, they were the go-between between the people and God. In the Old Testament, the people, in essence, did not have a one-on-one personal intimate relationship with God like you and I have the potential to have today. But once Jesus Christ came to this earth and did what he did, we now have that privilege to have our own personal relationship with him. So he became our high priest and ultimately our sacrifice. And so let's take a moment to to look at a very important um, piece of furniture, if you will, from the Old Testament in the time of the tabernacle. And, And that's the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had something called the mercy seat, which is, which was very important, very symbolic. On each end of the mercy seat, there were golden cherubim. They faced each other and looked down toward the mercy seat while their wings stretched out in such a way they covered it, forming the throne. So we have the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, and you can read a little bit more about that in Exodus chapter 25 if you'd like to get a little clearer understanding of what that's all about. In Exodus in verse 22 of chapter 25, the scripture says this, And there, the Lord says, There, at the mercy seat, I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in, the com- in commandment unto the children of Israel. 
And so we have this mercy seat where God says he is going to uh, meet with them. That's where his presence is going to be manifested. And then contained in this ark were the two tables of the law, which the children of Israel had violated. But the priest would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. And so without the blood, what the what those angels would in would in essence be viewing or facing is the law that was broken. But when that blood was sprinkled on the altar, they would see the blood that covered the the mistakes and the failures, if you will, of those who had sinned. And and part of the reason that's significant is Ezekiel tells us in chapter eighteen, verse fourteen, that the soul that sinneth it shall die. Paul says the wages of sin is death. And so the only thing that can set us free, uh, pay the price for the penalty that we deserve of death was the blood of Jesus. Um, without that blood there, without the blood there and what it represented, it, in essence, it was the seat of, it would be the judgment seat, not the mercy seat. But I think one of the great principles we can take from this is God's desire is not judgment. That That's really God's last uh, final effort or, or the last thing God really desires to do. God's desire is to show us mercy. And, and what greater way is that demonstrated than by what he did coming and being and, and becoming a human and giving his life as a sacrifice for us. And, and, and another side note is that in, in the Old Testament, the high priest were, were, they didn't do this by, uh, by choice per se. It, there wasn't a process by which they sort of volunteered. This was a result of the tribe of Levi that they were born into. And, and it really was sort of, in a lot of ways, I think you say is what was expected of them. And so they performed the, 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 the duties that they had, the, the responsibility of being the mediator between God and the people, they, 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 uh, they, they performed that in essence by obligation. I'm not saying that they did not have a desire or, or, uh, were not interested in doing that, but it, again, it wasn't really their choice. And, and I say all of that because it's important for you and I to understand that that's not the case with Jesus Christ becoming our high priest. He did not do it because he had to. Yeah, it was the only, ultimately the only way for salvation for us, but he did not do it simply because he had to. He did it by choice. In fact, one of the most notable scriptures in the Bible, John 3.16, tells us why he came. He came because he loved us, for God so love the world that he gave. And I think it's important for us to understand that and to realize that everything God did was out of love. Part of the reason that's important is because the devil so often comes with voices of accusation and condemnation, uh, trying to separate us from God. But when we look at the actions that God had toward us and what God did for us, that's one of the ways in which we should silence that voice of condemnation. So, so we said a few moments ago that he became our high priest and he ultimately became our sacrifice. And so, so let's look at that here in the, in the remainder of this, uh, session. The, the, the blood of animals had been offered by the high priest, uh, but that was not sufficient to take away the sins of the people. 
There had to be the blood ultimately of us of the sinless lamb of God offered as the sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. Hebrews 7 and 26 says this, For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's for he did this for this he did once when he offered up himself and so instead of this daily thing that that had to be done in the old testament that the priest had to do it says that Jesus Christ offered himself as the sacrifice once and for all for our sins hebrews 9 and 11 I'm going to read this to you from the Amplified Bible. It says it this way, but that at the the appointed time when Christ the Messiah appeared as a high priest of the better things that have come and are to come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, that is not a part of this material creation. So the Ark of the Covenant that we talked about was in the tabernacle in the Old Testament that was made by human hands. And so Jesus Christ was not made by human hands. Verse 12, he went once for all into the holy of holies of heaven, not by virtue of the blood of goats and calves, by which to make reconciliation between God and man, but his own blood, having found and secured a complete redemption and everlasting release for us. For if the mere sprinkling of unholy and defiled persons with blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a burnt heifer is sufficient for the purification of the body, how much more... Surely shall the blood of Christ, who by virtue of his eternal spirit has offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice to God, purify our consciences from dead works and lifeless observances to serve the ever living God. So it, it, it's talking about the ineffectiveness of the sacrifices of the Old Testament and, 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 and really if I could say it this way, all those sacrifices did in the Old Testament was sort of appease God. It it sort of held off the punishment that they deserved. But it did not forgive them. It did not provide forgiveness. It it did not provide righteousness. It it did not provide innocence. Uh it it, it I guess the analogy I could use is it's almost like a credit card. If you if you use a credit card and if you've got a balance on that credit card, uh, the the credit card companies only require you to make a minimum payment every month. And obviously, from the credit card company standpoint, that's all they want you to make because because of the interest, your your debt is increasing. But the bottom line is, if if you pay each month the minimum required payment on that credit card, they are going to allow you to keep that credit card. They're not going to take it from you, but you are not you are not really taking care of the debt that you have. And so, when Jesus Christ became the ultimate sacrifice, it wasn't just a payment to hold off the, the ultimate punishment. It was to completely set us free from the penalty of our sin. What a, what a great gift that you and I could no way ever become worthy of. 
We could never do anything to deserve it. And so for all of this to happen and to be effective, for Jesus to do what he did, again, he had to come in flesh that's just like our flesh. He had to live a life in which he didn't have any special advantages. He had to face things that we face And he had to overcome them. He had to be sinless. Not sinless because he couldn't sin. His flesh was just as capable of sinning as our flesh was. But he overcame sin. He overcame it because of the sacrifice that had to be made. But he overcame it also to be an example for us that we, through the power of Jesus Christ, through the power of grace, through the power of the Spirit of God, we also can overcome in this world. You and I have been greatly privileged and blessed to experience this thing called salvation. We haven't deserved it. We don't earn it. We definitely can't pay a price for it. But because of everything that Jesus Christ did, being willing to become one of us, humbling himself as God to become one of us, and doing that in the way that was necessary As the spotless lamb, he provided forgiveness and he provided hope for us that we could have an eternity to look forward to and not an eternity of punishment. God bless you. I pray that you have gleaned some things from this and that your understanding of of the word of God and the power of God has been increased in Jesus' name.